0: This podcast is a Tucker Media production. For more information, head to tuckermedia.com.au. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Media Mates podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week, I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is freelance presenter Greg Rust. Greg has been working in Sydney media for 20 years, firstly with radio station 2GB, then in television for Channel 10, and now as a freelancer for Fox Sports, among many other things. He chats about why he decided to chuck in a career in finance what makes a good presenter and commentator and why Daniel Ricciardo could become a Formula One world champion. Greg is someone who was very helpful during the early days of my career and one of the nicest blokes you'll ever meet. We caught up outside a cafe on a windy morning in Zetland, so please excuse the street and aircraft noise. It's a great chat, so I really hope you enjoy it. Greg Rust, welcome to the Media Mates podcast. It's been a long time and it's
1: uh, fantastic to catch up with you, mate. I've uh, followed your progress obviously on radio and in other areas and uh, it's been too
0: long. Now, you're the host of Inside Supercars on Fox Sports. How's that all going for you?
1: It's been fantastic. So quite a big change for me uh, career-wise at the end of 2014. After um, about 14 years with with Channel 10, I, I kind of stepped away and I'm more freelance nowadays. Um, so I work on the the coverage, or the Supercast coverage, which ends up on Fox and 10, so I retain still a very good relationship with 10. But yeah, a new panel show. It's only just over 12 months old. Um, Fox are very good with their panel shows, as you know, that, that are geared very much for the enthusiast, and that's what this is about. We've been fine-tuning it um, over time, trying to find the, the right sort of mix. Um, this year, we have a much smaller condensed sort of desk and the conversation is a a lot better and I find that there's actually less notes. There's preparation that goes into it, but less notes and more conversation, so it's enjoyable.
0: Yeah. Let's go back to where it all began for you. Media, was that always something that was on your radar? My dad and
1: my grandfather uh, were both um, both very good in business. So my grandfather uh, worked in the rag trade for many years, and my dad was the CEO of a manufacturing or hydraulic company here. And I think the feeling from them as I was growing up and in high school was that I would go into business in some way. Yeah. And I, when I left high school, I actually worked in finance for a number of years, which seems, now that I look at it, the complete antithesis of what I'm doing. I mean, I, I worked for uh, ANZ for a period of time and then for some boutique lenders, um, Australian Mortgage Securities, uh Another division of AMP, and Ralph, to use that side of my brain now, and to go in nine to five and... <laughs> I was going to say, do you uh, even remember any I, of that I, stuff? I, I catch up occasionally with some of the guys that were, were um, around at that time. We kept some good friendships, but it just seems like 180 of everything that I, that I do now, and I couldn't go back to that life now. I couldn't go back to nine to five. I, I, um, so, to, so to answer your question, one of the bosses I had at the time was big into motorbikes, and I, uh, I was doing things like go-karting and other bits and pieces, and I, I started to do a little bit of moonlighting, I guess you could say, over the PA at, at racetracks, and he heard me. And I thought, far out, I'm in big trouble now. The boss knows I'm doing other things on the weekend. <laughs> on the side. Am I, am I, yeah, that's right. Am I focused on what my job is here? Uh, and he couldn't have been more supportive. And he said to me, I think you should pursue that. And he, he said, give it some thought. He goes, if you want to you know, give it a decent crack, why don't you um, – still work for me. Maybe do like freelance three days a week, let's say, and then on the weekends you can go Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday and chase the other thing. And I thought mum and dad would freak hit the about roof. this. You yeah, hit the roof. <laughs> dad was enormously supportive and he's kind of sat me down and he said, right, if you do this, you need to give it an honest shot. You know, you've got to put a lot of heart and soul into this for 12 months to two years at least. Give it a proper shot. And probably about 12 months into it, I uh, I walked into – the finance side of my work and I was approaching my then boss's office and before I even uttered a word, he said, go, go. I know what you're here for. I know what you're here for. I know why. Yeah. And, you know, kind of stay in touch type deal. And um, I was very lucky to have that support, Ralph, because it gave me the money that you need just for day-to-day to to go and pursue pursue the dream. But you never kind of forget that hungry period. It was very good for me. Yeah.
0: Now, we had one thing in common before we actually worked together. You attended the Max Riley Media Academy, as I did after you, I believe. What did that do for you in terms of giving you a basis skill to, to work from? A lot. I, I,
1: once I started doing a few um, PA commentary jobs, I got to work with a couple of good operators. And one of them said to me, look, I think you have potential, you, you need polish, you need someone to help you go and... Go and um, you know, do some of these things. So I, I opted for for Max. He was the first place that I went to. I did a little bit of stuff, uh, not a huge amount, but a little bit of stuff at the Film Television and Radio School as well. Um, but I did a good couple of years with Max, and I found it very, very valuable because <clears throat> here was I—I I, I hadn't gone to Bathurst, I hadn't gone to to university and done media yeah. studies and things like that. I was coming in it from the other direction, already being in it and doing a little bit of work. There are risks in that because you're you're out there, you're on air, but. You're not polished, and you could find yourself rolled out the back door really yeah. quickly, you know. So he was he was excellent, yeah. And I I'd drop him a line every once in a while, but it was it was a good foundation for me.
0: It's a funny little place that place in in Redfern where he had the little terrace house, where, like you said, there would be people from all walks of life coming in, and not all of them necessarily had aspirations to pursue a career in media. It was more about sort of self development you didn 't leave that place without becoming a, a better person or more confident in yourself. you just had that happy knack of of bringing something out of everybody let 's say things hadn 't worked out and
1: i 'd gone back to business in some way. I reckon the things that I would have learnt from Max for you know uh, addressing potentially a boardroom situation or public speaking or something you know, there 's absolutely things that, that you got out of it that were greater than just. Uh, media and you 're right some people kind of discovered it wasn 't for them at the at the time others found it was or that they were perhaps better in one area than another and and um, as it was it was a very good the fundamentals I got out of that I still kind of use today. it was very good
0: for me so let 's join the dots we met at two gb How did you end up getting there so an opportunity uh, opened up through David Tapp at the time,
1: who was uh, who was working there, um, to go and kind of do some sport reporting. And um, to be fair, made things that were outside my genre. Really, I mean, what I do now with with motor racing is the is the, uh, the the comfort place. But I have over time stepped out and done a few other things. So working on the Winter Olympics and working on the Commonwealth Games and and things like that, which are very very good for you. It's good for you. To go and do those things, so I, I um, did some rugby league round the ground stuff for a while. Not not commentary, just just reporting. And then uh got an opportunity to do sport reporting during the, the weekdays. And and by the end of it, I probably did about four years there. And by the end of it, I did a little bit of, of news, general news reporting. And I actually ended up doing sort of nighttime and a little bit of daytime news reading, which I thoroughly enjoyed. That's actually something I, I miss. Of the things I do today, the news reading on radio is probably one of the things I, I miss. It was really good.
0: So what was it like coming into that arena when, like you said, you didn't really have any experience apart from mucking around at, at Max and, and doing the tapes? which obviously served you well for, for doing that, that kind of thing. What was that like, leaving that comfort zone behind? Well, I'm a big believer now that, that if anyone said to
1: you or I, hey, I want to get into the, the media, you, you would have to go and do some study at a university somewhere. I don't think I'd recommend anyone kind of do what, what I ended up doing, and that is, um, you know, having a, a massive career change at a very young age and and sort of coming in more or less through the through the side door, you know, um, but i 'm a big believer in hands on learning you know you can get you can get great things from uh, from university and from various courses but the hands on if you 're around good people is where you really hone your skills and two key people were very good to me in that period Jason Morrison number one who is now at uh, at channel seven. Uh, and head of their news, and uh, and Andrew Moore, who you and I both both yeah. worked with. And they saw that I was, pardon the pun, rusty, that I wasn't, um, you, you know, I, I didn't have the, the finesse that you needed. And they taught me great things, Ralph, about, about writing, about writing for the spoken word, about minimizing words. Because, I mean, radio is all about it's got to be short and snappy. and Word economy is just e-
0: such a great skill to have and learn.
1: And, and it's something that I didn't have a huge amount of, of um, experience with at the, at the time, so those guys were great. Jason was terrific because he helped me understand what is the headline, what is the news story here, what's the priority in terms of you know if you're putting a bulletin together, and and uh, so that skill set. Um, even now, mate, if I sit down and I write a yarn for something, I I, I go back to some of those base principles. So what I learned on the job from both of them um, was very very good for me, and it kind of continued when I when I ultimately left Two uh, GB at uh, the end of. Uh, what are we talking, it was around 2000 and then started a, a good journey at 10. Uh, Jason was at 10 at that stage and there were some good journos at 10 and, and that then sort of morphed into the TV. I was already doing some TV stuff with SBS, but it, but it again, the, the craft was honed for television by working around some of those good guys. Billy Woods is, is another one.
0: The fact that Jason and Andrew were radio people, they'd made their way into the industry from both being teenagers. They're radio nerds pretty much, so to have somebody there that were probably only a couple of years older than you. The fact that they weren't, you know, your 40-year veterans, they were your peers, so yeah. you would probably be able to cop the knocks from them a little bit better than if it was somebody in a senior and management position. Yeah, and
1: and and you know, you have to have some of those run-ins at times to get better when when um yeah, there were there were days where, where uh, I wouldn't say we we fought, but we had we had some tense conversations about different things. But again, that's all that's part of the learning. And I would you know I might walk away from it and, uh, a, a bit flustered by what happened at the time, but you learn something very very valuable out of it. And even um, guys like Clive Robertson, who was the breakfast announcer at the time, I you know I can remember him. I was it was daunting walking into his studio and talking to him about different things and he sort of took a little bit of a shine to me and would and would you know if I was doing something wrong he'd give me a he'd give me a pasting
0: he'd give me a pasting but you learned from that you know and just contributing to on air with him because one of the great things that working with Clive would have given you was just that unexpected curveball on air that you didn't know where he was coming from but it would have taught you to pretty much think on your feet. Otherwise, sink or swim in those situations, uh, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, I, I would go
1: in uh, with notes and I, I thought in my head, we're going to go point one, point two, point three, and Max would turn hard right and we'd go and talk about, um, uh, Clive, rather, would turn hard right and go, and go and talk about something completely different. So that was very good. You know, ad libbing for both you and I is, is, a, is a part of life. And, and again, that only comes with experience. And it's a people game. So, Clive Robertson, a very different human being to a, a, an Andrew Moore or a, or a Jason Morrison, and you you learn to figure out how those guys click
0: and and what makes them work and and uh, how to have how to have you know good dialogue with them on air. Two GB was a, a fun place to be around at that particular stage. There was a lot of young people, and you know, like you said, David Tap was there and really pushing that strong sort of sport agenda. It was a place when Two GB didn't actually have the newsroom at that stage. It was actually closed until it then reopened. So I guess from your point of view, you were able to learn on the run on a station that was not as it is now, the number one station. It was always sort of seen as the the poor cousin to, to UE. So to get your grounding in that area in a Sydney commercial radio station without having to go regional must have been something that you sort of looked at and, and, and pinched yourself on, on no, occasions. Oh, I, I really did. I mean, a, a
1: lot to be said for timing in life on many things, and that was a good time to be there because it was the beginning of, of John Singleton's rebirth of the station. You know, we walked in there and the facilities in Sussex Street were pretty basic, And but this group of young people, of which you were one of them, you know... you. you people pitched in. You know, they we made the best with what we had. I mean, I, I can remember doing a – helping to co-produce a sports show on a Sunday afternoon the day that Princess Diana died. And, you know, all of a sudden, it was all hands on deck. We were going through a dusty old uh, storeroom upstairs trying to find old reel-to-reel tapes, and we found – you, you know, uh sound and audio from from the wedding to Prince Charles and we found all these things and we were able to put together a, a half hour show of these, I mean I had no idea about that stuff, I was meant to be
0: there on no. a sport basis. It was the days before the internet so trying to find contacts in England that had some ties to Correct. the royal family or some royal observer, trying to find them from somewhere, we didn't have the luxury of, you know, typing it into Google, it was yep. just like, I kind of missed those days in many ways because the Chase was just so intense because you you started from absolutely nothing. Yeah, and and
1: I I work now with some good young guys um, in the in the motorsport realm, and I I uh, I mean it's not my responsibility to mentor, but I believe that because some of these people were good to me, I, I kind of should offer the same back. But that that basic sense of resourcefulness, you know, sometimes. Park the phone, park the the tablet, whatever, and and yeah, okay. Google can help you find some things, but there's nothing wrong with going and knocking on the door of the team person, the driver, the whoever, and having just a conversation about what you need to need to know. You, you can you can, as you say, make a phone call, or, or uh, that that chase is is a very important aspect. Just looking it up and googling it, and then you got your headline. That's not enough in my books,
0: I guess. Also, from from that point of view, it opened your profile a little bit, so you're able to then transition to tv i remember that you were doing uh the v8 supercars at the same time you were at 2gb so um how did that part of it actually
1: work for you it was kind of a juggle of of three things so monday to friday became very much the focus at gb and and um that was very good for me i would do some tv uh for a a program that is still going to this day on sbs called speed week and it was post-produced um various kinds of motor racing that were sort of middle to to uh, club level, if you like. So it was good to – not all of them can have the big splash that V8 supercars have on, on television these days. So um, that was a great form of learning for me. And then, as you say, it opened up a, an opportunity at, um, at 10. And again, when I got to 10 in the sport department, the head of the sport department was a guy by the name of David White, who is a bit of a mentor even to this day. He lives in England and works for a company called the World Sport Group. Very good. Very good. He, he – knows his sport but particularly he knows his motorsport he competed in it at a, at a certain level himself and he was enormously supportive for us but you also knew that you you couldn't uh you know we had to do it right because this is someone who who passionately loved the sport so you couldn't do a vanilla job we were always we we're always aiming to make it a And the group of people that we had there from Lee Diffie, who now works at NBC in the United States and is working on their Olympic coverage uh, in a a week or so's time, Um, Billy Woods, who was and still is enormously good to me. I mean, he's... Uh, ability to write and craft stories is, particularly in television, is second to none. He's got this beautiful way with words, and a bit like Andrew Moore, he can just sit at a computer and bash out these series of words within seconds that you, you wish you could do as fast and as beautifully. You know, you might be able to come up with something similar, but it takes you two to three times yeah, as long, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so working around those people and, and I dabbled a little bit in sports tonight and things, so working in, in that environment um, was was very good. We were lucky to win some some Logie awards and things like that with the with the coverage, but it was it was passion based Ralph we had it behind the scenes and in it, it, you know those on camera and reporting and stuff the, it, people they were into it we, we were right into the sport there was a collective um, a bit like it was probably in the early 2GB days people pitched in you know i can recall doing massively long shifts at 10 you know almost 24 hours at times just to try and because you wanted the perfect results you know and but where that where that helped me grow is that it it helped you grow as a as a live broadcaster and it helped me grow from from uh, uh, news reporting to colour stories to think, getting personality out of people and and with television, you don't have to just use your voice. Obviously, you've got sound, you've got yeah. vision, you've got all these other things at your fingertips. So, to learn to to uh, to better use that stuff as well.
0: What was the hardest thing for you going from working in radio to TV? I guess what you sort of mentioned there—the fact that you had these other elements that all came together—essentially, when you're in charge of. News reading or, or whatever, it's pretty much a one-man band. You might get, if you're a newsreader, you might get a few stories written by a couple of other people. But essentially, you write it all and you put it all out there. That aspect of working with other people in order to make it a production more so than just a, you know, a voice report, yeah. um, was um, that the most difficult thing to get used to? Well, it becomes a people game. So you,
1: you have to, and, and um, they're all different, you know? So you, you figure out that this is what makes this particular you know girl tick who she's a producer or this guy who i commentate with or whatever it might be um and you know the invariably as you go politics becomes a a a part of it i i struggle with that side of things i don't like it i don't like that you know I, i would rather just go and do the best possible job on a sport that i love and and you know the production that i love rather than it coming, you know, and there are elements of that at, at times. So that, that's probably the thing that gets me down. The biggest challenge for me at 10 was um, with 2GB, we were on a growth curve. You know, it was it was just before, you know, they moved into, to uh, ironically, next door to Channel 10 and beautiful, yeah. you know, new facilities and Alan Jones come on board and so did Ray Hadley and, you know... But that was a great time because you could lo- learn and grow. Ten was an established, uh, you, you know, big... You yeah, hit the station. ground running. That's right. You had to hit the ground running. And, you know, so there were, there were some long hours there. And I had, um, I had some career hurdles there along the way. Probably the biggest one, I, I, at the end of 2000, I'd been commentating the supercars and I went back to being a, a pit reporter on it. So in career terms, it's probably a bit of a, bit of a setback. Um, How was, did you handle that? I learned a lot from it. I, I, my mother to this day has a saying about keep your feet on the ground, and she will often still tell me that. And I probably got a bit too big for my boots, mate. You know, if I was to be brutally honest, um, my boss, who I recounted to you before, was, you know, we had some tense conversations about stuff. He didn't jettison me. He saw that I was still willing to to be a part of it, that I wanted to be a part of it, and. Probably the biggest message that I could give people in that sense is that it's not the setback in your career that people measure you on. I mean, invariably in media, you're going to have highs and lows. You'll go through some setbacks, then you'll bounce and you'll have a great run and what have you. It's not the setback that people measure you on. It's how you deal with it. And I made it, I made a pact with myself. I don't know that I really sought out any advice from anyone or or whatever, but I made a pact with myself that I wouldn't dwell on the past. I wouldn't uh, uh, get all bitter and twisted. I looked ahead and I kind of regrouped and I, I just got into it and uh, and I started to do a few things differently. I was I didn't act, but but I probably in those early days of television I was a bit more presenter than I was natural Greg Rust. And with any of these things, like you know, there is polish. You need polish in your yeah. your diction or your voice or whatever it might be. But on television, people can spot a, a fake a mile away, you know. And the more relaxed, the more normal you are and uh, and I started to do a bit more of that. I relaxed into my own skin a bit more. And and I think that was a big turning point for me. So, yeah, the, it wasn't the
0: setback. It was how I chose to deal with it. Is that purely based on experience, like being able to reflect on those periods where you look back and just think, gee, I was cocksure of myself. I was full of it and I, I wasn't being, as you said, Greg Rust.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think... I mean, it comes from a number of things. If you've got good people around you, good mates will tell you that stuff, they, you know. And if you are smart, you'll listen to your mates. You know, they're 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 not yes people. They're people that tell tell you how it is. I've got good family still to this day, very good family, both mum and dad. You know, they're enormously supportive, but they're not the kind of people that sit on the sidelines and champion the Greg Russ cause. They're the first to tell me, "Hey, mate, you know that's don't do that." Or, or does it help that know? they're
0: not? media people as well i think it does i'm a little bit great perspective a great perspective great perspective
1: um they are motor racing people though particularly my dad so that that helps i'm actually talking to someone who digs it and genuinely has and was taking me to the racetrack when i was 18 months old and all that sort of stuff so it's a good combination mate really you know And, and then over time you you from radio to television you form good friendships with people and you know that that you can come back to those people and you there's not a day goes by where I don't learn something Ralph you know I, I uh, you know I might have a conversation with someone that I haven't seen for a couple of years in radio and you know they're going through a challenge of this that and the other be it people wise be it production wise whatever and you you take little elements of that stuff away and you always use it as you move ahead
0: how much respect do you have for people that work behind the scenes obviously you experience that to some degree when you're working radio and when you produce a show or as you said you In those old TGV days, we're required to do everything. You're required to produce. You're required to present. You're required to do the whole box and dice. But when you're the front guy, when you're the main man out there and you've got a team behind you, how important is it for you to recognise the work that they put in to make you look good, essentially? I... I, um for me, it is essential that
1: they are, okay, you know, there are skills that I bring to the, the table that I hope contribute to the overall success of the broadcast, but fundamentally those people are responsible for it. I, I know when I stand in front of the camera, I, ha- I have a responsibility to all those people behind me to, to do the best possible job because I represent them. And then when we get off here, I, I always make a point of going and talking to uh, as many as I can individually many of them are uh, friends that I've known for a long time. you know when I had a, had my fortieth birthday in recent years i uh, audio guys, cameramen you know I, I had a lot of those guys come and attend that with me because they are they are vital to what I do and you want the best product for the broadcast, so you need to work with those guys So sometimes I'll sit back and talk to the cameraman about. Is there a better way to do this? You know, this is what I would like as the end goal for the story, or for, for the look, or for the person I'm interviewing. Is there a different way we could do this? And and um, their input is uh, often way better than what I can bring to the table. So you, yes, over that since I joined Ten in two thousand, I mean you you become only if you want to, and I did want to, uh, a, a people manager almost. You 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 have to. It's a team like, it's like a rugby league team. And, and, you know, the director of sport or the, the host or whatever is, uh, you know, the, the, like the coach, you know, or that, that sort of feel. But you're all collectively trying to get the best possible result. And there'll be days where you don't get it over the line, you don't get the win. But, but you need everyone going into bat together. And if you can't do that, if the people mix is not right, or more importantly, people aren't working. Together to get that harmony, to get that—it's um, like a cohesion, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that really? cohesion—that's the best word for it. I mean, if you're not—if that's not happening, doesn't no matter how hard you try, it won't—it won't be. It might be okay. You'll get it to air. You'll—you'll you'll get it perhaps to the
0: finish line. But was it great? Probably not. You know, that—that they're, there for me, that they're, they're integral. You said coming from a, a different background into media you felt in the early days you're a little bit green what feelings did you have the first time that you stood in in front of a, a camera and and had to present something in in addition to the things that i do now
1: one of the things i i um i, I help with uh is media training so i've been media training some uh, some athletes for red bull recently and some of them are at the end of their career and they're thinking about getting into broadcasting and stuff like that so i kind of try and share the things that i've learned but you, i mean Daunting probably isn't a strong enough word. And you were looking at this big plastic black thing, and and it's not like you and I sitting here talking face to face now, where you, you can interact. And I used to try and imagine my mum for a little while, and on the other side, and
0: how I would talk to her. And um, yeah, there. It's funny how different people have different techniques. Like Very. other people would perhaps like maybe envisage having an entire crowd in front of them. Other people just want to focus purely on that camera. Other people, like you said, want to have that one-to-one conversation. So yeah. it's kind of strange that a whole lot of people that you talk to have these different ways of whether it's putting off those nerves or making them feel comfortable. Yep. And
1: and probably the best thing uh, that happened to me in that sense was working with Barry Sheen for a little while. So Barry was a massive – I mean, he was a rock star in England, you know, a, a two-time – 500cc world motorcycle champion and he brought character to the sport i mean to this day we admire him greatly for that he was this cockney git who always did things that was um, you know caused a stir or but he was big on before we would start anything before we would start a v8 broadcast or a MotoGP broadcast or whatever he'd say here let's have a laugh all right and if you if you and we'd be having uh, a laugh with the the studio crew or we'd be doing rehearsals and there would be antics and you'd think, God, you know are these guys serious about what they do, but what it actually did it took the serious edge off of um what was very important to us and ensured that we had had fun because if you're not having fun, the people at home aren't having fun no. and, and that's now he was he was great for that. I mean, he had stuff in his contract about it. he don't ever wear jeans, he'd never wear a tie, and you know all that kind of stuff. But we always had a massive laugh before we got
0: going, and then it came. It translated to on air that would continue. Yeah. There's the presenting side of things, but then there's also the commentary side of things. Now, what were your greatest challenges in in those area? In because everybody has a different style. Some people get caught out in the early stages of their career uh, trying to. Emulate somebody else, so they they end up trying to sound like somebody else. How important is it for you to relax into your own commentary style when you, you're going through that, as opposed to uh, the presenting side of things?
1: I, I couldn't think of a of a stronger piece of a, a, advice. I and mean, I love doing impersonations, but you know, for me to commentate a supercars race like Ray Warren would be a massive mistake. Um, I, I think commentary has evolved and changed as media has changed as well. So you know Daryl Eastlake had this uh, unbelievably infectious loud huge style about him but you can't commentate like that anymore you't certainly in car racing I don't think or, or bike no. racing you can't call like that anymore and people have so much at their fingertips now that, that you have to um, you have to craft in and, and bleed in blend in things that they don't know. Um, you complement the broadcasts in a manner that is—it's not a discussion. It's got to be. There's it, got to be commentary, but it lends itself to discussion a little bit sometimes with the co-host. And you want the people a bit like they do in Big Bash. You know, they yep. want you to enjoy the fun with them when they are conversing. There's still play-by-play um, elements to it. Um, it's not shouty. There are pauses in it that allow the natural sound to come through. A lot of high-end uh, TV executives they love that. They like. I mean, at the end of the race, you know, when when. Uh, the, the team are cheering and, and the celebrations are Just happening. Shut Just, <laughs> shut Just shut up.
0: shut up. shut up. Yeah,
1: that, that's way more powerful than anything I could say, you know.
0: Was um, that hard to learn, to marry in the excitement of what's happening in front of you with the pictures that are actually telling the story? It's about feel,
1: you know, and if you asked me to do that in a sport that I wasn't familiar with, it would be a lot harder. Um, after years of doing motor racing, you you and particularly certain events. You know, I've done a swag of Australian Motorcycle Grand Prix at Phillip Island when Casey Stoner won, and and it, it, you feel the moment. You feel when it's right to add a little something and then when it's right to ease off, you know. Who are your mentors with commentary
0: that helped you develop your, your own uh, style when it when it came to delivering uh, broadcasts on, on, on races? Well, that's a very good question. I don't know that I've actually sat back with the commentary and,
1: and thought about about mentors, um, let me, let me give that some thought here. I, I I think probably what is fair is that I've taken elements of lots of them along the way and there are things you learn um i I did the world road cycling championships in 2010 and still that's still a massive highlight for me and i got to work with phil liggett and paul sherwin oh amazing just amazing and i mean you know when you watch those guys they did it exactly the same as they do with the tour de france so they had all this wonderful history and notes on on uh on historical monuments in the area uh, you know around geelong and where we were at the time but they're their passion is... I mean, they talk from the heart. Yes, they have
0: notes that they can they can uh, use if they need to. How important is that authenticity and, and having that, that knowledge bank and that passion for a p- particular sport? Because there's a lot of times where commentators might be thrust into, particularly with the Olympics coming up, they might be thrown into something that they don't necessarily know. And a lot of the, the great commentators will put in hours and hours and hours of research, but it doesn't have that same connection with the audience that you hear from somebody you know has got that really solid base of of history and and, and passion and knowledge. A connection to the sport.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, that's true. Um, But I think there are great examples, though, of people that have come into other sports that really apply themselves. And then through that... They get the sense of connection, whether it be the people they work with in the sport, or uh, you know when they get to meet the athletes and they understand the struggle the athletes go through to get that gold medal or whatever it might be. So then, then that heartfelt stuff comes through. But, but I think I think the commentary ha- has to be um, you're not you're not rattling off stats and you're not just calling play by play. You, there has to be what I would call heart in it. There has to be, and, and I. I've come to believe that people can spot a fake a mile away. In that sense, you know, they don't know you from a bar of soap. You might be one of the nicest people in town, but if you're not, if you're not connected to it, they, they feel that straight away. You know, the the audience makes up its mind. You can't you can't sit and look at Twitter, and and go, oh, far out. I've offended all these people, and I didn't do a great job today. And that that can't be the basis for how you commentate or how you present. But you do have to, I think, understand what the what the popular feeling is among those that love the sport. You know, what's the thing that they're talking about? What's the thing that they're wanting an answer on? And, you know, we've got some great things at our fingertips now that we never had in radio no, exactly. for, that, for that stuff, you know. But um, calling from the heart, I think, is a is a
0: big one. Do you have any commentators, say, outside motorsport that you look at and just say they're just magnificent at what yeah. they
1: do. Phil Liggett for me, yes. man, I mean, that's a perfect example. I mean, to get to work with him on that occasion and we still message each other every once in a while. I mean, he's just the great example of someone who took a sport that he loved, immersed himself in it, managed to create the job of a lifetime and, and um, you know, a way he went and he's, Unmistakably cycling. The moment he starts talking, you know it's Phil Liggett, and you know it's about track cycling, road cycling, whatever, it, whatever it might be. I mean, he's a great. I think he's a great example. I love what Baz did because he he brought and reminded all of us that character is hugely important in sport, any sport, you know. Um, spent light and shade, right? Light. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, he, did, he did some <laughs> – he could get away with stuff now. I mean, if I said some of the things in commentary that he said, I'd probably, you know, get rolled out the door and never heard of again. Uh, but, yeah, I think character, having a laugh, uh, uh, deep connection to the sport, huge passion for it. Um, I mean, Murray, Murray Walker now is, he's, he's, you know, he's – aging, but his voice is I mean, in Formula One terms, it's it's very hard to follow someone like that, Ralph. I mean if yeah. you get the opportunity of a lifetime to step into someone like that Shoes, it's
0: immensely difficult because they're they're just It they takes have, it takes years to build up that or bank those credits with the audience, doesn't very, it? Very very. And
1: you know, they're they're icons, those guys, and they are they are a part of the sport, you know. So um yeah, I think there's things that you can learn from from both of them that you could blend into your own thing but to get back to your question maybe two questions ago now it has to be Ralph Tucker or it has to be Greg Rust it can't be you or i endeavoring to replicate what they do you might you might look at what they do and understand some of the techniques that might help you but it's got to be you calling it it's got to be your your way your style
0: we were chatting before we we started this conversation just about how well the V8 supercar guys do it's now called supercars but how well they do in buying into the overall presentation of the sport and the fact that NRL and the AFL could learn a lot about how to present themselves in terms of an overall picture it's really just been a strong development and as I said a a huge buy-in from everybody in the sport to make it such a complete television package whenever you watch a V8 Supercars round. I think the, some of that, when you go back through the last sort of 20
1: years of history of the sport, some of that comes from the fact that when it became V8 Supercars from the Australian Touring Car Championship, um, it, it went through quite a period of change. It, it, it was sort of in the early to mid-90s. It was, um, you know, small grids. Uh, you know, they did it tough. And I think the sport has never forgotten those days. So the, the message to the next generation coming through is that they have to be good at all that stuff, you know. Um, probably the only thing I think, they do it very well. The code does it, I think, and that's probably sounds biased because I've been around it for so long, but you do experience other sportsmen and women along the way. Um, but sometimes I feel like codes, other codes, uh, don't give fans enough uh, access or media enough access to these these uh, other sportsmen and women, and they should. I think they really, they really should. But well, they're guys, missing out.
0: Like people, yeah. the, the fans are missing out on seeing what their heroes are saying because they're so caged in by coaches and or media managers, where if you just look at your Jamie Wincup Cup or you look at your Craig Lowndes, and I just marvel at the fact that I can watch that broadcast not as a, a really hardened Motorsport fan, but just to see the way that they conduct themselves yep. and, and present themselves and open themselves up—I don't know what it's like behind the scenes. Whether they're doing it through gritted teeth or whatever, it seems completely and utterly natural. I, I think. I think the only time they would do it
1: through gritted teeth is on a bad day, and that's very rare. Mate, that's very rare. The, all of them are uh, very giving in the manner that you that you spoke about. Um, I mean, Lowndes in particular—he he just learned from the master. He learned from the late Peter Brock, and he is the kind of the, the, in the way he goes about everything in the car out of the car with fans with media very Brockesque and and um, that's not a put- on that's Craig Lowndes, but he learned about that stuff about you know staying you know until it's dark and signing autographs for fans and and he's exceptional at that
0: yeah and your connection with the drivers what's that like because watching you present you seem to have a really good rapport with a lot of them it's been a a long time now you've obviously built up those brownie points with those guys over a a number of years was that hard to establish in the beginning or was it because they were so open and magnanimous with their their time it was an easy connect for you I think they
1: can sense pretty quickly whether you're genuine or not or how you know how much you know about the sport and things like that and they wouldn't blow you off if you didn't know that stuff but but the rapport uh comes when they know that you dig the sport when you when you're into it um and plus they'd see me around with other things you know when i was doing the pa stuff on other categories and some of them were coming through and those guys don't forget you along the way so i mean it's it's remained a part of my life I, i met my wife through greg murphy she went to high school with him and you know so there's things there's little sort of anecdotes like that i've always believed in being very neutral Ralph, you know you can't. You get to know these guys, and and um, there are things you do away from the sport that are friendship based or, or whatever. But you know, at the end of the day, uh, respectfully, I have to be able to ask some questions at times when when things aren't right. And you know what, they they're okay with that. They there are. Uh, I
0: was going to say, how is that separation from professional you to you know obviously building up a friendship with, with these guys yep. off the track? Yep. I mean, uh, I I think
1: the the Spending time with them away from the track helps you in other ways. You know more about the person. You know more about what they're like away from the track, and that then helps you in the you know, might help you in the style of questioning, or it might help you um, just to understand how they tick. You know, but but I think if you then had to ask some tough questions, as long as you went about it the right way, they would respect you for that. Yeah, and they do.
0: Looking at it this season, I mean, in recent years, was obviously seen the the domination of, of Jamie Wincup, which sort of has come to a degree where other guys are now sort of starting to, to catch up and, and, and go past. I mean, it's it's probably been the most exciting uh, season in recent memory, hasn't it? Yeah,
1: it's been unbelievable. I mean, it is genuinely the toughest, most competitive that we've we've seen it. Um, you know, Jamie leads the championship now, so he's showing uh, <laughs> that he, he has his eyes on a seventh. I mean, that's amazing. Greatest of all time. He's n- nearly chalked up 100 race wins in the championship and uh, wants a seventh title. We're seeing the emergence of Shane van Gisbergen, who's you know gone from being in a small team to now being part of the Red Bull framework. And he just looks fearless. Doesn't he, he does, <laughs> and he's he's taken maybe a couple of rounds to get back into that big team uh, way and style. But yeah, mate. I mean, and he's driving something all the time, Ralph. I mean, as you and I sit and talk here, he's in Belgium about to do a race in a McLaren. You know, so he's, in, he's in something all the time, and that helps you. You know, and he's he's a great character too. He's got a. Uh, a real good understanding of motor racing and motor racing history, and he's different to a Win Cup and a Lowndes you know. But he's learned from some of the things those guys are, are doing in the public domain. Um, a few people think that he will be the man to win the championship, you know. So there's that. And it, I mean, you got the great story of Craig Lowndes in his early forties, who's driving like these kids that are half his age, and um, the the fans love that. You know, they love the fact that Lowndes is absolutely in the mix and won the last race at
0: Queensland and. Yeah, just awesome. There's also Formula One. Uh, You've spent a a lot of years being part of the the Channel 10 coverage for that. It's something that you obviously enjoy. We've been blessed in Australia over the last, well, since 2002, to have Mark Webber and then Daniel Ricciardo coming through just at the end of of Mark's uh, racing career. What kind of ride has that been for you, the fact that we've actually had some Australian input in the greatest motorsport championship in the world for me um
1: unbelievable because i've watched both of them grow and go through different categories to get to this point mark even more so than daniel daniel was obviously west australian base but you know you'd see him pop up here and there um with mark you know i mean he was uh you know he did a number of categories here in australia formula Ford in the in the mid-90s and he's you know the family weren't made of gazillions of dollars, and he did it through sheer persistence and determination.
0: And was it David Campisi that early on, in early, early on? Early on,
1: he's one. He's one part of it. Um, Mark's partner Anne was very good. Um, you know, it's a, it's a seriously, it's a great story of how you know people would have looked at him and gone, "Mate, you're mad. This is never going to work." And he he did it through sheer determination and, and persistence, and he did it his own way. You know, we talked before about being. I mean, the Mark Webber I know today. Okay, he's been shaped by the, the rigors of Formula One and and by European life, but he hasn't changed. He's the same bloke. And and I uh, I asked him for a hand with something recently, and you know the response comes back straight away. I mean, he's just unbelievably good like that. Daniel's a different character. Um, both have been tremendous in the media, I think. And and as Ricardo. He's got real character about him, hey. Really no, he does, she? You know, Mark's a, a great straight shooter. A, um, I mean, some of the commentary he's been doing either for Ten or Channel Four in the UK. I mean, where he can now, he doesn't have to worry about anything. He's still racing in sports cars, but he's lending his his Formula One experience to the broadcast, and it's phenomenal. I mean, he's you know he's got a view, he's earned that view. He, he knows how to articulate it, um, and and Dan has always. You know, Mark was, was good with advice and things for him as he was coming up through the ranks and very supportive because he's a fellow Aussie. But Dan's been big on being his own man as well and going about it his own way. And I, I believe, without overstating, and I believe he'll be a world champion one day. And when he does, you, you've got a bit of, he won't mimic a Barry Sheen or he won't mimic a James Hunt, but there's real character about this kid.
0: Yeah. Talk to me about Mark Weber. I don't know whether he was the victim of tall poppy syndrome, but Went through that stage of when he first burst onto the scene in that first race in, I think it's 2002. We were all cheering for him. And then all of a sudden, he just seemed to cop a bad rap. He was much maligned for, for many years until he won his, his first race. And then all of a sudden people were back on the, the bandwagon. What did you make of all of that? Because you obviously built up a, a connection with him. And it's a, it's a bit strange when you, you meet the person as opposed to the seeing the publicly presented Person that's in the spotlight, or the way that they're portrayed by certain elements of the media. What was that like for you, just watching that sort of narrative evolve? I would try and uh, chat
1: with these people that held that view and convince them otherwise, because it was that's it was it was an incorrect perception. You know, you have to understand that that to get into Formula One, I mean, he. He got that fifth place in 2002 at the Australian Grand Prix with Minardi. They were a back-market team owned by a, an Aussie entrepreneur. And and from memory, uh, they, they had enough. They'd stitched a, a deal together that was enough for two races. And those points from that fifth-place finish in Australia, which was absolutely against the odds. I mean, the gearbox should have failed. There should have been all these problems with the car. Yeah. And he fought off uh, some big names to... to you know, and in the end, they they uh, let him even celebrate after the official podium on the podium, which is almost unheard of. It was yes. that bigger that bigger deal. Um, and mate, that that he was away then. You know that that they, they the points from that uh, and the and the prize money that's attached to it helped launch the rest of his time with Minardi for the year. And and people saw how gritty, how determined he was, and they were prepared to to give him a Guernsey. But but you know, you can like anything in life you could you could join a radio station or a media outlet at just the wrong time as they start going through a rating slump or whatever and there were times where there were teams like Williams that should have been uh, you know winning races and being championship winning material but the car wasn't it went through a downturn you know and it wasn't until he got to Red Bull who was still they were still growing. They were still, yeah. you know, forming this, this massive team that they now are, but he got on at the right time, and he just... But he's got this... St- I've seen him in, in situations like his challenge in Tasmania and in other environments. He's got this steely resolve about him. He's an unbelievably determined human being, and and, um, and the fact that he was able to pull that off against the odds, I, I greatly, greatly admire him. When people, you know... Typically, they were people that didn't fully understand Formula One, or they, you know, just I struggle when when they everyone tried. loves a winner, right? No, they, so they did, when they're they not
0: going so well, everyone jumps off, and then they're back on again. So you, 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 you could hear that when he won his first race in Germany.
1: I mean, the outpouring of emotion on the radio. I mean, it still ranks as one of the, you know, most most fun playbacks in Formula One because Absolutely. it just summed up his emotion. It summed up how
0: hard it had been to get to that point. Then you look at someone like Daniel Ricciardo who just seems to have been embraced from the get-go. He probably hasn't had the the lows that, that Mark has sort of had, so therefore we haven't been, you know, chipping away at him. But, um, mate, I tell you, as someone who, I se- as I said before, who isn't a great lover of mo- motorsport, but who's a great lover of sport, he's just such a great breath of fresh air. 100%. Like, you know, just, yeah. just even, looking... even Even in Formula 1. You oh, know, even yeah. in Formula 1, yeah. you know, you look at guys that are, like Kimi Raikkonen, and just so focused on what they have to do, and so intense. And then you look at Daniel, he just looks like he's having fun yep. every time he goes to the track. And, and on the rare
1: occasions where he's not smiling, and I mean, they're, they're few and far between, you know it's for a reason. You know, it's because he felt like a win at Monaco slipped away from him, or, or and, and not, you know, not because it was his fault, because of things that the team did or didn't do at the time. Um, yeah, he's a, an exceptionally talented driver for a starter. As we said before, he's got a bit of character about him. He'll be tested this year and kind of already is. They've got young Max Verstappen in there and he's yep. very fast. Um, so, but you know, that's when you play in any sport at the ultra elite level, that's what happens, isn't it? You know, you come up against uh, teammates or, or, you know, if you're in a cricket or a footy team, invariably there are people waiting on the sidelines
0: for their big first grade opportunity or whatever it might be. And yeah. What is it that you admire most about people that put themselves through that? Like For me, to just have that fearlessness inside a car that is going at a ridiculous speed, yep. I just marvel at the fact that they're able to psych themselves up every time they, they, they put their themselves. I mean, you've got to think about the fact that it, it's not just the race, it's it's the practice and everything that goes along with that. Yep.
1: I, over time, I've been lucky enough to do... A couple of things for stories that will uh, etched in my mind forever. So one of them was a two-seater MotoGP ride at Phillip Island with uh, Randy Mamola, who's a former Grand Prix winner and exceptionally good. And another one was a two-seater uh, F1 ride at Albert Park. And when you do those things, you you having been around the sport for a while, you you think you understand how ferocious it will be, how how uh, how hard the braking is, how the car corners or the bike corners, and doesn't your brain actually can't compute how full on it is. And when you walk away from those rides, which may only be two or three laps, and then understand, okay, they've got to do practice, they've got to do qualifying, they've got to do a 20-odd lap race in a MotoGP terms or, or 50-odd in Formula One terms. I mean, to do that, to be on the absolute edge where the thing is is borderline spearing off the road every lap, because that's what it takes to win, that requires a very special level level of talent, Ralph. I mean, you can, you can apply yourself, and they, they do. Invariably, they do in, in training and everything else. But to be able to do that requires a level of skill, mate, that I could only dream of. They are unbelievably good.
0: Well, and you think about some of them. They have careers of, of 10, 12, 15 years in the, in the sport when your life is pretty much on the line every time you get into the car. Yep. I mean, the, the sport's both
1: are uh, very, very good on safety. I mean, they don't, they're do always looking inwardly at ways to improve safety. The Formula One's doing that at the moment. Um, but yes, I mean, to, to, to do that requires a mindset that, that, you know, you've got to be able to... I did a little bit of go-karting with my dad when I was younger, um, but I learned very quickly when you come up against these guys and you see what they do and how they lean on the tyre and how quick they're prepared to tackle some things, it's, I mean... I wish, I wish I had that. Uh, what's what's the word for it? I can't swear in this podcast,
0: but I wish I had. I wish I had those extra parts or those better parts. <laughs> There's also the fact that these guys are as physically fit as any athletes in the world, aren't they? Yep. I mean, Weber learnt
1: from watching Michael Schumacher. I mean, Schumacher, Cena kind of started it. He took fitness to a whole new level in Formula One, and then Schumacher went to another level again, and um, you know, Weber could uh, hold his own in the mountain bike races, triathlons. I mean, you name it; he's just just ultra fit, even even now. Um, I don't think many of them like the fact that the rules in the sport meant that sometimes you had to be, particularly now, you've got to be almost wafer thin. You know, that's too much. That's probably a bit too far. Yeah. But uh, I mean, Mark loves that side of it—the fitness side of it, understanding the, the the you know nutrition and all that sort of stuff. Um, that's a very very big part of being a successful athlete but the thing i admire the most with with both daniel and mark is that you know they to go and move away from australia to live in england at a very young age and you know away from friends away from family away from all the comforts of of home and to be so uh there are days where i wish i had a bit more of that you know you and i've got a bit of drive because you have to to you know survive in the media but what they do mate that's that's special the fact that they what looks like they take a punt and it could all not work out they could come back to australia and have to be a finance guy for all i know if it didn't work out but the fact that they're prepared to have a punt and put everything into it and even when the chips are down get back up and go again and get back up and go again um, when you see them win ultimately win a grand prix that's and you know the struggle they've been through, that's, yeah, pretty special.
0: As a TV presenter that has been around for a long time, what are your thoughts on the advent of social media and the role it plays within television and and sports broadcasting? Because obviously you had a career before that where there might be a whole lot of people out there that didn't like Greg Rust. You wouldn't know about it. No. They'd have to... Take the time and, and and write a letter, or if they had enough uh, guts, give you a ring through the Channel Ten switchboard. Switch. Yeah. You know, nowadays every Tom, Dick, and Daisy can have a pot shot at anyone they like at any time yep. they like. Yep. I always believed in the
1: in the particularly in the in the ten days that if those letters or if those phone calls came through within, and there were there not many. I mean, I count less on one hand the the, the amount that I had. Um, I believed in answering them. I believed in trying to understand where the view was coming from. If they've taken the time to put pen to paper, they're pretty wound up about something. What is it that they are wound up about? And let's try and resolve that. Um, I've... Uh, adapted social media. You and I worked with Trevor Long for a yep. long time. He's been very, very helpful to me in that area. I wouldn't profess to be a guru at it, but I've learned a lot of things. So I don't do Snapchat, but I play uh, with, with Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and all are very good for me.
0: But use I use Instagram really well in terms oh, of I've... being able to give an insight from somebody who is living it and being able to share not only the current day experiences, but I love the fact that when you bring back those old pictures that might be with a Barry Sheen or it might be with a a Lee Diffie or someone who just sort of takes you back to that period of time. So that's obviously something that you enjoy doing because, you know, you've obviously built up a a following over many years through your your broadcast.
1: I I, I maintain, in a bit like the example I gave you before about mum saying to me, keep your feet on the ground, one of the things I am uh, very – one of my big beliefs is that i am a storyteller i am not the star i don't that's not how i look at myself i yes i work in a frontline role in in that sort of stuff but for me it's the wind cups it's the lounges it's there and there are times where i, I show some of the things i do on television or, or whatever but i try where i can to behind the scenes if i can take viewers or people that are willing to follow me and show them hey this is what goes on or Here's a laugh with, with Craig Lowndes, or here's a, you know, whatever it might be. It might be just that you're on the start line and you can soak in all the atmosphere and the plane flying overhead or whatever it might be, you know. So I'm a horrible photographer, I think, but I, <laughs> I try, I try. Um, when I do get some of those messages on on, on Twitter, I, I believe every day when I, when I finish the broadcast that if you've done the best thing you can possibly do with the broadcast as yourself to tell the story of the race, whatever it is, and you can you can pretty well sleep soundly at night. I might look at some of that stuff. I don't let it get to me. In the early days, I probably would have. I don't let it get to me, but I use it as a as a bit of a litmus test. If there's you know, 10 people in there that are bluing about something, and it doesn't necessarily end up being about Greg Rust. It might be about something, uh, a decision in the sport or something. That, to me is, okay, that's a conversation starter. These people are wound up about the fact that so-and-so got penalised. So how can we talk about that when we're on Inside Supercars yeah. next time? Or how can we, you know, I, I don't have to physically reply to, or I, I have a policy, if I do reply, I reply once. I don't get involved in tic tacking because you can get hot under the collar and, and... You can't let it consume you. You can't let it consume you. And also to... ...unlike you and I sitting here now, you can see my facial expressions, you can see how I'm... ...in some text of whatever it is, 140, 160 characters, you can't do that. People can't... can't gauge the mood. You can't gauge the mood. So I I only go back once, but I use it to gauge sentiment. And if I feel that there's something that needs to be addressed there, okay, let's talk about it on Inside Supercars. Or let's, you know, viewers, unlike ever before, are able to be involved in a broadcast now. So let's, let's embrace that. If it's reasonable, rational conversation... That is
0: uh, fair and balanced. Let's do it. I guess it's kind of like your modern day talkback in in many respects, isn't it? Totally. You you are actually taking an element of
1: of radio and putting it into uh, into television. I think it's a great thing. I, I think you know people people will sit and watch something nowadays. They they dual screen. It's you know you and I'll sit there and watch a footy match or whatever, and we're we're keeping an eye on the other game via Twitter or whatever it might be. So you know if people are talking about that stuff, we should. I within reason, um, you know, as I say, as so long as it's fair and balanced. If I, if I open a conversation about a penalty for Jamie Wincup that happened on whatever lap it was, you know, we can talk about that, but then we should also counterbalance it with, well, why did the officials come to that conclusion? Let's let's always try always try to present a balanced view on it, a balanced take.
0: We'll wrap things up in a sec. I think every cement truck in Zetland's just uh, <laughs> gone past us as we sit outside this, this cafe, but I just want to get some advice from you for anyone that's looking to break into the media and forge a career, whether it be radio or, or TV? Go and get a
1: proper credential first. Uh, once you've done that, don't be afraid to do the hard yards. You know, do the late nights. Do, you know, while you're at university, go and try and do writing for some websites to get some experience. Be diverse. Don't just come in and go, you know, you and I loved our, our Period of radio, but we're sitting here today with a, a much broader skill set. And we, you know, I, I write for websites, I do voiceovers, I do some radio here and there, and in addition to the television, I'm not just, you can't, I think, in media anymore be one dimensional, if that makes sense. You've got to be, you've got to have a br- very broad skill set, but be prepared to work hard and. Be adaptable, you know, social media has come along in, in my career and that's created a significant change. I mean, there will be, for the next breed of media people, the next generation, there will be things I've never even thought of, you know, that will, um, providing you understand them and if they're working, embrace them we've seen now even in terms of the the advertising spend and how the pie is split you know the the, the total advertising spend in australia i think for about 2 years now the bulk well, not the bulk but the, the biggest slice goes to digital activities you know more so than radio and tv now so that ultimately means for you and i there's a shift in what we do you know i i'm enjoying doing some video based material now just for for web purposes so you know, that's meant that I've gone back and learned about editing a little bit myself, and GoPros and things like that. You know, I, I know, I know already that that my young kids are only ten and eight. You know, as they grow here, a GoPro will actually become a part of their schooling. They will learn yeah. to video and edit, and that'll just become a part of life. So, be adaptable, work hard. Don't be afraid to pull the long hours. Get in there, get your hands dirty, work hard, learn from the people that you are around—the good
0: people. Figure out who the good people are, learn from them. And, uh, and be diverse. Yeah. Greg Rust, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Ralph. Great to catch up. There he is, freelance presenter Greg Rust. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Greg, please let him know by sending him a tweet. He's at thruster1. It sounds dodgy but he assures me it isn't. You can follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, please leave a rating or review. That way, more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the MediaMates Podcast. Media
1: Mates
0: Podcast.